If I could get a job supporting my children and making a living wage, I would pack it. I would pack up the big camping tent and uh, bring it right back home. Welcome to the Lost Generation Podcast. My name is Eric Klein. Hi, everyone. My name is Kyle Curtis. And Kyle gave this podcast its name. This is episode zero of the Lost Generation Podcast. Kyle, before we get into the show, I wanted to ask you to explain to me what you were thinking when you suggested the name Lost Generation Podcast. Well, basically, it's just like this past 10 years has seen such uh, a hurt force for everybody across the board around our, our country, no matter the demographic, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the age group, um, unless you are a defense contractor or an oil company exec, your standard of living has not improved over the past decade. In fact, it has gotten worse. Uh, people are bringing less t- take-home pay than they were 10 years ago. Um, there are millions more people who need a government aid in a time of, of slashing government uh, budgets for, to provide these services. And so, you know, I'm a white male and I was making more money 10 years ago than I am today. And so I just thought like, you know, this is going to be an open forum for all of us, regardless of your race, class, creed, sexuality. We all know that things have gotten worse over the past 10 years. So I thought the lost generation would be a good name for a podcast. Well, let's hope it's a good name for a podcast. Let's hope it's a good podcast. Hey, Kyle, you and I on October 12th, 2011, went down to the Occupy Portland encampment in downtown Portland there in the first week that it uh, had been set up. And one of the many people we spoke with was was Arlo. My name is Arlo Stone. Cool. What brings you here, Arlo? I was laid off a month and a half ago. I have two kids. And... um, I got beat the bush, dude. I've refiled my goddamn New Seasons app, my hiring profile 10 different times, chased every lead, every squirrel, every nut. There's nothing out there. So this is where I be now until I get you, a gig. How long have you been here? I've been here since uh, Sunday, since I saw it was legit. Are, you, are your kids down here with you? Uh, no, nah, my my gal sit, like, watches other kids, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, I gotta wait. Tomorrow she'll be down here on the what, weekend. What were you doing when you got laid off? I was working for a printing company. I'd been there a year and a half, but low man on the totem pole. Just gotta go. Eric, it was very fortuitous timing that when we decided to put this podcast together, the most important story of any relevancy that's going on right now is the Occup- Occupy movement. Um, this movement started out of an idea from uh, Adbusters, which is the Culture Jammer Journal of Record, which is based out of Vancouver, British Columbia, of all places. And they, they, they had the idea of like, wouldn't it be great if we occupied Wall Street and went to the scene of the crime where all this went, all the, uh, all this happened that caused our, our economy to, to melt down into the state it is today? Well, months later, some college students in New York uh, acted on that idea, set up camp on the streets of Wall Street. And then soon that crowd had uh, morphed into a crowd of thousands and they weren't going to leave. And then that, that Occupy Wall Street movie has metastized to the point where if you go to, I forget the website, it's like Occupy Any, Everywhere, I believe, um, you will see that there are Occupy uh, movement efforts going on in hundreds of cities around the country and even around the world. Yeah, and what's interesting about the way that it started, it seems that like uh, the Adbusters folks, they picked a date, they picked a location, and then the movement took it from there and it's been um it's been a blob it's it's been called a mob i i i like blob um it they're making it up as they go along and that that's part of its strength and maybe part of the the dilemma for people who want to talk about it that they don't have spokespeople they don't have a leader i'm here because all these 
all these people are willing to put life and limb on the line to come down here and say enough is enough. So the disparity between the rich and the poor is so gigantic that um, at some point there's nothing left to do but sit down and say that's enough. Well, what was interest of interest to me when I went down to the Occupy Portland um, camps was I wanted to find out what brought people there. What if there was a uh, shared purpose or reason or if they all came for different reasons? Because one of the common complaint being offered by the detractors of the Occupy movement is that there is not a single clear, coherent, coherent message. Well, I don't know if that's exactly true. In fact, former Representative Alan Grayson provided a succinct summary of the movement in less than a minute on a recent appearance on the Bill Maher show. They're, they're complaining about the fact that Wall Street wrecked the economy three years ago, and nobody's held responsible for that. Not a single person has been indicted or convicted for destroying 20%, 20 percent of our national net worth accumulated over the course of two centuries. They're upset about the fact that Wall Street has iron control over the economic policies of this country and that one party is a wholly owned subsidiary of Wall Street and the other party caters to them as well. That's the real truth of the matter, as you said before. And get the and, man a bongo drum. They found their spokesman. Okay. Well, <laughs> Take if your I, shoes if, off, if, get listen. a bongo drum, forget where to go to the bathroom, and it's yours. Listen. If I am a spokesman for all the people who think that we should not have 24 million people in this country who can't find a full-time job, that we should not have 50 million people in this country who can't see a doctor when they're sick, that we shouldn't have 47 million people in this country who need government help in order to feed themselves, and we shouldn't have 15 million families who owe more on their mortgage than the value of their home, okay, I'll be that spokesman. And that's P.J. O'Rourke, right, that Alan Grayson is, uh, is debating with there on PJA, P.J. O'Rourke had his ass handed to himself. Kyle, why, why is Alan Grayson the spokesperson you've chosen? Because he, he lost. He lost his seat. Well, he lost his seat because he was, uh, he was an outspoken conservative. He made it very clear what the Republican agenda was on the floor of the House. He pointed out that, uh, the Republican had no, the Republicans had no plan for health care. Their plan was don't get sick. And if you get sick, die soon. He pointed out that it does not matter what stance Obama took, the Republicans will take the uh, other other stance. If Obama, you know, as, as Grayson pointed out, if Obama came out with a cure for cancer, Republicans would say, why are you putting out all these uh, Cancer Research Institute doctors out of work? It does not matter. So so they targeted him with, a, like, I think the most, and I could not find the exact dollar amount, but like for somebody who represented such a small percentage of electorate, Hundreds of thousands of, I think, even millions of dollars were pumped into that that congressional race to make sure he did not win. And and thanks to the Supreme Court and our brand new ability to buy elections, thanks to the Citizens United ruling, he was not able to uh, to match that dollar for dollar, and he lost. That's about it. Well, Kyle, you were on a roll there, and I didn't want to interrupt you, but you you misspoke and you called Alan Grayson a conservative, and clearly he was a, a liberal uh, in the Democratic Party. But speaking. Of Representative Grayson and his inability to out fundraise his opponent, uh, we spoke with Marla at the Occupy Portland protest. I believe that money should not control our government, and I feel that it really does. And Marla was interesting because uh, Kyle, you you got right down into it with her. Uh, she has a job. She's not an unemployed person. I have lived in Portland my entire life. Do you have a job? I do. I work as a prep cook yeah? in a local business. So then why are you here? You got a job. Everything's fine. Everything's great. Because my job doesn't pay enough. I have $60,000 in student loans. I 
would desperately appreciate some support in the way in improving my life and I am not getting it um, also it's not just a personal thing there are literally hundreds of people here I have met dozens of people today today alone and I've been here for three days solid who cannot find a job they are they have been looking for months they cannot find a job they're denied and denied and denied and this movement I believe will help turn things on their head enough that more jobs will be able to be created. One of the other individuals that we met down there at the camp was was Jack. And Jack is a 19-year-old young man who was working at that time that we saw him uh, serving up free coffee to the other volunteers at the encampment. And he says that he's volunteered also with the medical team since joining Occupy Portland over the weekend. And since the camp had a street running down the middle of it, and it was actually two individual camps with a street running down the middle, he was hoping to establish a second medical tent. That's what I'm trying to work on today besides the coffee is just to maybe get some kind of, if anything, just a tent where dehydrated people or, you know, anybody can sit down and not bog down the other medical tent. And Jack told us that a wide range of issues had inspired him to join the movement there. He mentioned the decriminalization of nonviolent drug offenses. He was also very clear that ending uh, all of the wars was a top priority for him. He had uh, anti-war slogans written on the back of his jacket. Jack told us he's a full-time student, and he makes a little money on the side selling electronics on eBay, which he said he's been doing since he was a kid. Uh, he is studying business administration in college, but he's thinking about changing his major to biochemistry. Now, do any of your peers in the uh, business administration program you're in asking why, asking why you're here hanging out with a bunch of radical hippies? <laughs> um, no, I mean, honestly, I think most of the kids in my school, at least, are pretty aware that something needs to change. You know, I think most people understand that there's something seriously wrong here. They may not know exactly what is wrong or what to do about it, but most people, I believe, are know that something's wrong here. And I mean, you know, small entrepreneurs are getting screwed just as hard as everybody else. You know, it's, we are, it's, we need to have the entrepreneurial spirit going. And I think that grassroots stuff like this is right along, right in line with that, you know? Eric, you said that Jack was selling stuff on eBay since he was a kid, but really he, he is still a kid. He's 19 years old and he was there working on the coffee. And, and that was remarkable. That was a shared trait, uh, with everybody we, we spoke to at Occupy Portland. I mean, 30 years ago, Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols, you know, he yelled out, no future for you, but really he was 30 years too soon. I mean, all these people that we spoke to, they, they had, you know, besides their youth, they had other traits. They lacked job prospects and they stared bleakly into an uncertain future. And they inherited this, this broken economic political system in which worker productivity has only increased the past three decades while wages have remained stagnant. So who has seen the benefit of that, uh, of that increased productivity? It's a system that all but guarantees that yes, there is wealth redistribution, but it all gets redistributed upwards into the hands of the nation's very few. The one percent that the Occupy movement is is demonstrating against. Um, I believe uh, Representative Grace pointed out, or the numbers is, are there in the interweb somewhere, that over the past 10 years, there are 27 million more Americans living in this country than uh, 10 years ago, but there are 1 million fewer private sector jobs. So Eric, you do the math. And I, th these people on the streets of Occupy Portland, they're doing that math and, and they're, they're, they're pissed and, and righteously so. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that's really interesting when when the when the movement gets criticized is the is this lack of um, 
of, of the individual participants having um, being able to clearly and concisely express it, you know in a way in which it looks nice in the newspaper exactly what they're doing there and I think that's a little unfair since I mean how is a 20 year old supposed to to form that to formulate that understanding of the world uh it it seems like they're jumping the gun like it i i'm i'm willing to allow certain individuals that they they know that something is wrong and they're there because they're 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 trying to explore a, a notion of a solution we 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 spoke to a lot of people uh who are in that situation and like the 20 year old you know the 20 year olds or whatever they know that they're they're screwed they know it they may not understand why and they may not be able to explain it you know, you know uh, verbosely or, or what have you, but they are, they know that they're being screwed. Another of the young people that we spoke with them is Marjorie. Why are you here, Marjorie? Um, I'm here to help out. I'm here to learn. I think those are two main things. I know that there are general things that I'm really angry about, and I think a lot of people are angry about, but yeah. What are you angry about? Um, I'm, I guess, well, I'm, well, I could list off random things. Do you want me to risk um, marriage equality? I'm angry about the school funds. I'm angry about things being cut. I'm angry about... <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm nervous. I'm so nervous. So I left that part in, Kyle, not just to embarrass Marjorie, Marjorie but to illustrate the fact that I don't think it's... I don't think it's necessary for people involved in a protest to always be perfect spokespersons for the cause. And I um, I don't really appreciate it when the media um, demands that of people. I think I think it's they're entitled to participate and and not have every idea about why they're doing it uh, as clearly formulated in their mind as would provide appropriate sound bites. And we ran into a lot of, uh, you know, intelligent young people educated and uh, but there's also an element of the occupy portland movement that uh somebody i, I was speaking with at a coffee shop uh, yesterday was uh, referring to the street people um and and he was not uh, it was like the best term he could come up with it was not something that he was saying derogatory uh, he was it was not something he was saying in a derogatory fashion it was just there's a group of people uh, who live in all of the cities uh, who spend the majority of their time on the street uh, it reminds me also of uh, a farmer I was speaking with at a farmer's market. I asked this farmer who seemed very opinionated what he thought of the Occupy Portland movement. And his first uh, words out of his mouth were, they have nothing better to do, which I thought was really amazing and ironic because clearly the the students who are involved have nothing better to do than to do this amazing work of, uh, of expressing their First Amendment rights, but also uh, possibly some of the more uh, chronically unemployed and uh, individuals who are uh, drunk and or stoned all the time also have nothing better to do than be a part of this uh, encampment. I think the idea that they had nothing better to do is precisely the reason why they're there. If they had jobs and didn't have this broken social economic system, they would not be there. They would have better things to do and be more productive members of society. Well, all that, my friend, is a way for me to introduce one of my favorite characters of the internet. I shouldn't call him a character. He was a real, live, living human person. He helps keep Portland weird. His name was Topher. Topher, why are you here at Occupy Portland? I'm here to uh, make a change to the way the government operates on a daily basis. Yeah. 
Oh, quite occupying? Yeah. Well, they give me a house, a mansion, and one of those nice little Mercedes Benzes. Okay. I'm here until the end, dude. Okay. And um, are you from here in Portland? Yes, I am. Northeast uh, Killingsworth. Do you have a job? No, I don't. How long have you been un unemployed? For, since uh, April 19th of 2011. I used to work at Panda Express off McLaughlin. Okay. I mean, I'm a, I'm a good person. I just try to help out. I, I, uh, I've put up a lot of these tarps around here. Mm -hmm. um, what I have also done is I've also helped with food donations. I'm here with, I was with safety. We've just went under. We need uh, new help with uh, safety. We need to get it reorganized and get it re-approved by the Portland Police Department, which are being kind of cockfucks. And they're not letting us uh, express our uh, First Amendment rights down here. They're repressing us still because we are in their city, apparently. We're in their city when we are the people. We are here to demonstrate that we know how to start a revolution. Yeah, so so that was Topher. Um and um you know, I don't know. I'm I'm at a loss right now. So if you Right. Well, yeah, it is it's okay, this is why I played Topher's clip because there's a Topher Topher's presence at the Occupy Portland march and he was a helpful nice young man. He was not he was he he was volunteering in all these different capacities, but he clearly uh had either smoked a lot of marijuana or drank a lot of beer, or both, and we were there uh, around lunchtime. Yeah. It was the afternoon, and um, that that plays right into uh, uh, the right wing talking points about Occupy Portland and about uh, the whole Occupy movement. That um, it's a bunch of unemployable stoners. I mean, I haven't seen that exact quote, um, and yet you know. And I was talking about this with this guy at the coffee shop last night, who had a lot of opinions, who was a big supporter of the idea of um protesting wall street but was disillusioned let's say with with the majority of people that might be doing it because they're more uh they're more people of the street um which for those of us on the left we'll make an excuse for them that the system has been so chronically uh dysfunctional for so long that who can blame people for just being fucked up all the time and yet on the right it's like well you you pick yourself up by your bootstraps or or you fail and that's all these people are failures and i wanted to talk about that with you kyle and 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 it, it reinforces the negative stereotype um we're not going to deny that uh the idea of the quote-unquote dirty hippies or the street people presence isn't um true but you know what you camp out in eight, eight, for eight days in the elements and you come across as like smelling like peaches and sunshine it's not gonna happen to help transport trash bags help transport trash bags to the center of road to the center road thank you uh, what we did witness uh, at the Occupy Portland event was a call and response uh, bit between the sanitation team, which was interesting. They were moving stuff around. They were cleaning cleaning themselves, uh, cleaning up after themselves, which uh, goes against a, a, a popular 
um, talking point that the, uh, the conservatives have, have pushed about the Occupy movement. Like, oh gosh, they, they destroy public property. We, the Tea Party never did that. Well, the Tea Party is trying to destroy our government and the, the services that, uh, so many, uh, Americans need to make it through each day. So, you know, they trample on some grass. Okay. You know, like, like trash accumulates when people are camping. That's fine. Um, I mean, well, the, you know, maybe that's not acceptable, but what's really not acceptable is destroying these things, uh, that have allowed the middle class to both A, be created and to thrive for decades. And then now to get away with, uh, or to, to, to get rid of is, is ridiculous. As we come to a conclusion on, on our report about Occupy Portland, I wanted to point out that the relationship between the occupiers in Portland and the police presence and uh, the rest of the city has been remarkably different than what has occurred in other cities throughout, throughout the country. You hear reports about veterans for peace getting manhandled and beaten up by the uh, cops in Boston. Um, the, the police in Portland have been remarkably patient and uh, have worked very well with the, with the demonstrators. The demonstrators worked hand-in-hand with the Portland Marathon, which had planned their run months in advance and then uh, ran right through the encampment. So the occupiers agreed to move their camp to allow the Portland Marathon to occur. However, there was some, um, when we were there, there was some discord about um, opening up Main Street. Uh, it had been blocked. It had been blocked for, for days. Uh, and that street is used by thousands of people who are also part of the 99% to eke out a meager living. Uh, buses go through there. Um, and it, so it did create a major headache and an obstacle. And the day after we were there, the mayor did send in the cops, uh, arrested eight protesters, and Main Street was reopened. But for, for all in all, the, the, uh, relationship between the Occupy Portland movement and, uh, the cops, uh, has been remarkably, uh, great. And so, um, that, that's a good thing. Right, well, that, that, that street closure was really an amazing moment because we were there again on October 12th. And what had apparently occurred was that, um, what, what appeared to be about a dozen members of the Occupy Portland group were, were trying to, um, re-close the street, which meant that they were sitting in the street with barricades while twice as many members of the Occupy Portland movement were on the sidewalk yelling at them to please not do it. And then, I should say, like an equal number of individuals of the media were also standing uh, witnessing this occur and and they were probably doing just as much of a of a job of blocking the street it was it was kind of cute like with the camera crew set up and the reporters from all the major media outlets um standing right there in the middle of the street watching uh this this occur they they were they were as much of an obstruction as anything else but it it was um it, it was a what, what we were watching was a breakdown in the consensus process, and we asked we asked Jack a little bit about that, like how things were going with the way that the Occupy Portland movement was was running itself on, on these uh, general consensus meetings. Yeah, there's a lot of um, we. It's not the first time we've had issues like this. There's a lot of differing opinions, obviously. Here, so many people, it's inevitable. Um, I mean, democracy is a slow, laborious process, but it's it's better than just having somebody make the decisions for us. I wanted to share with you some audio of an interview that I was able to record earlier this year with Heidi Shareholes, who's the author of the 
Economic Policy Institute report, the class of 2011, which which they are calling, uh, which they've subtitled, "Young Workers Face a Dire Labor Market Without a Safety Net." Good thing the class of 2012 doesn't have to deal with that. And well, it it's what the 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 nut of the matter with the report is that it's bad. The Great Recession, as they call it, is bad for all workers, and then it especially fucking sucks to be young. Young people occupy the first fired, last hired rung on the occupational ladder. They've really seen, you know, disproportionate um, job loss. And then also, just because of where they are in their life cycle, many of them are new entrants to the labor market. So they're entering into a labor market where, by no fault of their own, they just had the misfortune to be born at a time that dumps them into this. And this is, they're just facing, you know, unemployment rates that have never been seen for this group before. And when when Heidi says never been seen for this group before, she's referring, she's making that statement based on uh, government statistics that go back to the post-war period, to 1948. So this is the worst, uh, this is the worst unemployment situation for, for young people since World War II. And it's especially bad for black and Latino young people. I mean, Kyle, you and I are both young white men and it's worse. It's it's worse for our black and Latino friends. These enormous overall unemployment rates for young people nevertheless mask even more enormous variation for different racial and ethnic groups. So we have seen um, racial and ethnic minority young people get hit particularly hard. And that is true um, even for graduates, even for college graduates. And now Heidi brings up a new another point in this interview that uh, kind of blows my mind. It's that if you are black in our generation and you've graduated from college, you still uh, are screwed more than your white counterpoints counterparts who have graduated from college. In in other words, it's just it, it it would appear as though it doesn't help to have gotten a good education. It, you could it is it, it's bad. College for young people is not, and you know, is not the silver bullet equalizer because we're seeing substantially higher unemployment rates amongst racial, racial and ethnic minority young people with a college degree. So, I mean, in other words, what Heidi's saying is that you can be black and have graduated from college, and you're still going to have more trouble finding a job than your white counterparts. Yeah, uh, when I when I speak with my colleagues who are of a minority ethnic minorities, and I and I talk with them, and I you know I say, look, things are bad for me. Things are bad for my cohort as a white male in my early thirties. They're going to be horrible for you, and I get that, and I understand that, and it's been particularly horrible since Obama was sworn into office. So there has been an attempt to uh, portray Obama as as bad, as a bad president. His policies have been horrible for minorities. Why are minorities, why are blacks going to vote for him again? Um, that's that's garbage. This has been thirty years of a systemic failure that has resulted in it being bad for everybody. Whites, blacks, Hispanics, you name it. In fact, the only people are coming out ahead, actually, through the demographics are, are Asians. They're, they're the one demographic that are doing better. But, you know, beyond that, they're probably not doing as good as they could be. So we need a, an Asian president to run in 2012? Is that what you're saying, Kyle? Uh, I'm just saying the demo demographics shows that they're actually doing pretty good over the past uh, 10 years. I don't know if myself, if Obama gets my vote uh, just because it could be so 
much worse, but maybe that's something for us to, to hash out in a future podcast. I wanted to bring up the last point that Heidi shared with us that um, once things go badly in your work career as a young person, it's incredibly hard to recover, which um, is kind of the dep most depressing fact for me um, since I've never really uh, put a real career under my belt. Um, here I am in my early 30s. Most of the, the, the evidence in the economics literature was based on the very deep recession of the early 80s. Not as deep as the one we're seeing now, but it, but it was a, it was, it was a very deep and relatively long lasting recession. And what we saw coming out of that is kids, young people who entered the labor market during a downturn, during a severe downturn, compared to the, the counterfactual universe where those same kids would have otherwise entered during good times, faced severe and lasting effects to their income. That they, they, they entered at lower income levels, and there was a persistent effect to that to last on the order of 15 to 20 years into their career before they catch up. And Heidi theorized that what that was about was that once you once you get a job, you have the connections to help you get the next job. Uh, once you are employed, you then uh, look really good on paper. You continue to be employable. And for those of us starting our careers in a, in shitty economic times, it it doesn't bode well for for our future ability to, to make money, to make a living. And also what I also took away from what Heidi said is that um, what, are the, what are the lessons to be gained from looking at the past that can be applied to this present situation? Um, there aren't any. This, this current situation <laughs> does not represent anything that has been. You can't compare it to the early recessionary 80s. You know, like, yeah, Reagan passed his tax cut. Uh, things went into recession. Then he increased taxes. We have not seen a full-scale uh, increase in taxes generating revenue uh, under uh, President Obama and this Tea Party Congress. It has not happened. Um, and... Uh, um, and so, so things just, just aren't comparative. You can't make a comparative. It's a new situation. It's a, it's a new environment. We have to look at things in a new, uh, new manner. Uh, there's a new paradigm that we need to construct. And that's what I think those that are on the streets of the, of, of the Occupy movement, they get it. They understand it. Alan Grayson summed it up. He, he, they, they know that they've been dealt, uh, it, it, they've been dealt a pack of lies their entire life. And that is what we discovered when we spoke with them on the streets of Portland. Well, Kyle, that wraps it up today for this episode zero of the Lost Generation podcast. It was fun. I'm looking forward to episode one and uh, figuring out what we're doing here and what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, cool, man. Thanks, Eric. And uh, yeah, uh, we are uh, we like the social media, so look for us on Facebook and Twitter and uh, and our accompanying blog as well. And uh, and uh, listen for us on the interwebs. The Lost Generation Podcast is a brand new endeavor, so bear with us while we get this thing up and running. We're on Twitter at LostGenCast, Facebook as the Lost Generation Podcast, no the though, Lost Generation Podcast. The Heart of Things Online should be located at LostGenerationPodcast.wordpress.com, and hopefully things at LostGenCast.com will be up and running any day now. Bear with us, like I said. Your email feedback, suggestions, and tirades are welcome. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at lostgenerationpodcast at gmail.com. For Kyle Curtis, I'm Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening, and look for us with Episode 1 uh, coming up sometime later in the month. <laughs>